Our reading this morning begins in John's Gospel, chapter 13, and goes through it to the beginning of John's chapter 14. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Peter, then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This is the Gospel of Christ. Well, very good morning to you folks, and uh, thanks for that reading. The older I get these days, I tell you, try not to get old. It drives you balmy. My bag, whenever I preach somewhere, my bag gets bigger and bigger and bigger the older I get. I've got to remember my, my drink, I've got to remember my cough sweet, I've got to remember my sandwiches if I'm going somewhere else, I've got to remember my handkerchief, I've got to remember to go somewhere. It drives me balmy. I'll come in with a suitcase next time I... I uh, yeah. But there we go. Uh, also, the older I get, I become sort of more emotional about, uh, about the scriptures and, and uh, the gospel. I'm going through uh, reading John's gospel at the moment, and uh, I've come to this wonderful um, the part. Well, it's all wonderful, but from chapter 13 uh, for the next five chapters, it's the discourse in the upper room. And I just become so emotional about that. I got emotional in chapter 11 when, when Jesus said to Mary, do you believe this? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that we, we gloss over these things? Oh, I certainly do gloss over them because we, they become familiar. But that was an incredible thing to say to a young woman who just lost her brother. Do you believe this? And then five minutes later, he raises somebody from the dead. Can you believe it? I mean, that's got nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. <laughs> but I uh, just thought I'd throw that in. 
Well, we're just looking at verses, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, that the other, some of the other things come into it, but we're just looking at those <coughs> four verses. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that you've given us, by your grace, your word, so that we've no need to poke around in the darkness as to what life is and what life is about and where we came from and our, our future glory. We've no need because you've told us. And we thank you above all else for your son speaking to us through your son finally. And thank you. And help us now as we come to this passage. I pray especially this morning for people who may be going through difficult times and of which they may not be able to share with other people. So they've got to live with it themselves. But it hurts deeply. I pray that you would speak to them, Father, and comfort them as only you can. And pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen. Well, how do you cope when uh, something happens in your life which really, really rocks you? Life was going well, everything seemed to be going fine, and then bang. Something drastic really happens which knocks you emotionally and knocks you for six. Maybe the diagnosis of a terminal illness. The unexpected death of a loved one. Maybe a young person dies who you love and it just knocks you. A hurtful relationship maybe. A betrayal in a relationship maybe. What do you do as a Christian? Especially when you don't know why God allows this. As a Christian, what if you have a son or a daughter who has turned their back on the faith which you brought them up in? They seem to love the church. They seem to love God. They did everything in the church. But they turned their backs on it. How do you cope with that? Or what if that something which rocks your life is that you fail as a Christian? You fall into deliberate sin. You let Jesus down in a massive way. What do you do? How do you cope? What do you do as a Christian when something happens in your life which troubles you greatly and rocks your faith? Well, that's only a fraction of what these disciples felt on the night before Jesus died. And as, I've, as I just said, we glance over these verses, we become very familiar with things like this, but just imagine how they felt. Their faith, their hope was absolutely rocked. But then John says, uh, Jesus says these wonderful words, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I want to look at two things from verses 1 to 4. First, what caused it, all this anxiety? And secondly, what was Jesus' remedy? Firstly then, what caused all this troubled hearts? And troubled here in the Greek is a very strong word. It means distressed, emotionally distressed, agitated, thrown into a state of confusion through some sorrow or some grief. It's a very strong word. What caused it? Well, for one thing, Jesus leaving them and about to die. He told his disciples on a number of occasions, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the chief priests and elders, and be crucified. Well, here he's saying that that time had come. Chapter 13, verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified. Verse 33, I will be with you only a little while longer, and where I am going, you cannot come. He was leaving them and to die. Imagine that. These disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They had ate, slept, traveled, done everything with him. 
He'd taught them. He guided them. They'd left their homes and their work. Some of them had even left their families. Their whole life was now about him. It centered around him. He's also spoken about building his church, which they'd imagined that he was going to be with them. Well, surely all that's gone now. Their hopes were shattered. They couldn't imagine life without Jesus. If you're a Christian, can you imagine life without Jesus? Now, I know that many people go to church on a Sunday, but during the week they never think about Jesus Christ. Jesus means nothing to them, really. They just go to church on Sunday. And if Jesus wasn't there, they'd still go to church. They wouldn't miss him because he's not really part of their life. But true Christians who love Jesus, who know his forgiveness, have experienced his forgiveness, who know his beauty, his power, his compassion, his peace, his grace, his love, who follow him and need Jesus, and whose only hope in life and death is Jesus, can you imagine life without Jesus? If somebody came to you and proved that Jesus is not the Son of God, didn't die at Calvary, and no resurrection, wouldn't that trouble you deeply? Well, that was these disciples. Except that it was much harder for them. We live on this side of Calvary. We know what happens. They didn't. For them, it was all over. And their faith was rocked. Their hearts were deeply troubled. Another reason for their anxiety was, Jesus had just said, a chapter in, in verse 13, verse 21, that one of them would betray him. One of them, Judas, wasn't a true disciple. Yes, like the other 11, he'd been with Jesus for three years, he preached the gospel, he fellowshiped, he received the same teaching, but he wasn't a true disciple. That a false disciple was amongst them, shocked them. It distressed them. Is it I, Lord? Is it me, Lord? It distressed them. And this causes distress for believers today, doesn't it? That false teachers, false disciples, whether it's the liberal in the traditional churches who believe very little of the scriptures, whether it's that or whether it's the wacky TV evangelist who's just out there for your money or for power, that these people are not only in the church but often seem to control it, distresses Christians. What's going on in many churches today in New Zealand distresses me. I'm sure it does you. Churches emptying through lack of gospel preaching. Church leaders who seem to believe less and less of the scriptures, who bow down more and more to the culture of the day rather than biblical teaching. It is distressing for true believers. Another thing that caused their hearts to be troubled was their own weakness. Jesus had just said that Peter would betray him. Now again, that's hard for us. It's easy for us to sort of say that thing, but it's hard to imagine. Their leader, the strong one amongst them, would fail. He would betray Jesus. And when Jesus told his disciples that they would scatter and desert him, Peter said, oh, not me, Lord. These other 12 will leave you, but not me. I will never deny you. But he did. And the others must have thought, well, if Peter can betray Jesus, what hope is there for me? 
If he fails when the going gets tough, how am I not going to fail? I'm weaker than him. The enormity of the church's task and a realization of our own weakness and failures and inadequacy can overpower us as Christians who love Jesus Christ. When you think about the thousands in New Zealand who are in danger of a Christless eternity, your friends, your colleagues, your workmates, your neighbours, even your family, doesn't that sadden you? Doesn't that spiritually distress you? Jesus wept when he saw many in Israel walking to an eternity without God. He wept. Paul said, I weep because people are enemies of Christ. Paul felt the, 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 pressure, the, presser, the, the pressure to reach people for the gospel, but he also felt his own weakness and own inadequacy. He was so weak, and all that overwhelmed him. That's what drove people like Hudson Taylor to China. That's why the great preachers that we read about, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Spurgeon, Robert Murray McShane, that's why they wept before they preached the gospel to non-believers. They wept before they preached. They felt the responsibility, but they also felt their inability themselves. Well, at least that us. Do you feel that? For many Christians today in our society, lost souls hardly bothers them. We're more worried about our health than lost souls, or our career, or our home, or traveling. We're more worried about those things. Our hearts should be troubled when we see our friends and our family walking in danger to a lost eternity. Well, these are the things that troubled those 11 apostles. And as Jesus saw them, he forgot his own impending suffering and he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he gave them two remedies for their anxious hearts. Two remedies. First, faith. Have faith. So he said to Martha, have faith. Verse 1, believe in God, said Jesus, believe also in me. When you're facing trials, and there will be people here this morning who are facing overwhelming trials. When you're facing them which are too huge for you, or where somebody has hurt you, and you don't know how to cope with these things, just trust God. Hang on to him. And I mean hang on to him. Some years ago, when I was at St. John's, I was going through a particularly difficult time. And at least 20 people said to me in one week, Wally, trust God. Trust God. Now that can sound very glib. It can sound even like religious jargon. And you feel like saying, yeah, right, like I did. Yeah, all right, leave me alone. Stop it, stop it. But when it's meant, it is true. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, obviously, those words don't mean what a lot of people in our society think they mean. People say that they believe that God exists, and they think that's having faith in God. But that's not what Jesus means here by believe in God. A better word is trust. Trust means 
not only believing that God exists and believing what he says, but acting on and living by what he says. That is trust. God says, live this kind of life committed to Jesus Christ and you'll enter eternal life. So I live my life committed to Jesus Christ, trusting that what God says will happen. That is trust. It's more than believing that God exists. It's putting you, it's, even further, it's putting your trust in that person. That's what Jesus means here. Put your trust in God, the person. And then further, put your trust in me. Notice he puts himself on the same level as God. But what he's saying to those disciples is, you have seen and believe that I am the Son of God. You have seen my power. You have seen the miracles and healings that I've done. You've heard God's voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. You heard that. You know that I've never failed you. You know that I've never let you down. I've never deserted me. I've never deserted you. You've trusted me in all these things, so you know that you can trust me. Then trust me now. I know it's difficult for you to understand. I know you can't comprehend what's going on here, but trust me. Believe and trust are the most frequently used words in the New Testament. Jesus says, believe in me. I say this, why don't you believe me? Do you believe, he says to the blind man, your faith has healed you, he says. Do you believe that I can do this? He who believes in me will not perish. Over and over and over again. Twice in this verse and again in verse 11. Trust me, believe. And there, brothers and sisters, is the key to your troubled heart. If you're going through difficulties and trials right now, which you can't share with anybody else, whether it's struggles of faith, whether it's struggles of doubt about the gospel, whether it's loss of a loved one, whether it's a betrayal by somebody or some group, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it's a deep hurt that is always there and never goes away, or, or whether it's life is just too much. Faith sometimes is just too much. You don't understand these things. Jesus says, trust me. Or if you failed, if you sinned badly, if you've gone wrong badly and you feel that God cannot possibly love you, Jesus says, trust me. Believe in me. There are times in our Christian walk and I've met a number of Christians over the years when this is true. There are times in our Christian walk when Jesus asks almost for the impossible. He asks for almost impossible faith. He did with these disciples. He did with the, In the next 24 hours, they would see him suffer, be beaten, die on a cross. It was against everything that they imagined. Everything. They will be frightened. They will be alone, discouraged, anxious, with all hope gone. Everything's gone. But he wants them still to trust him. It could be translated, keep believing, because it's continuous. Keep believing. You may say, I do trust, but, but I'm, I'm still troubled. Well, trust him more. Hang on to him. You may not come out of it. You may have to go through it, but hang on to him. Trust him. He does know what he's doing. I know it is hard 
in hurtful and painful circumstances which keep going on and on when you can't see a way out or how you can cope or why it's happened. But Jesus says, trust me. But my life is falling apart. Trust me. The thousands in New Zealand without Christ. Trust me. My husband, my children don't believe. I pray and I pray. Trust me. Or I failed, I've sinned, I've gone to the bottom. I'm not as good a Christian as these other people in the church. Trust me. Trust me. That's the first remedy for your anxious heart. Simple trust in Jesus. He does know. He is with you. And it will work out. You can't see it now. You may not see it in this life. But you will see it. Trust him. The second reason they mustn't be anxious is that when Jesus goes, he's going to heaven. My father's house, verse 2, is heaven, the dwelling place of God, God's kingdom. Yes, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He even indwells every believer. But in the Old Testament, he had a special place where he would dwell, the sanctuary. And that sanctuary was a shadow of heaven, God's abiding dwelling place. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going. And he says, in my father's house are many mansions. Mansions here doesn't speak of luxury. It's not a five-star apartment. It can be translated place of residence, which speaks of permanence. It speaks of the home at the end of a tough journey. That's what it speaks of. And when he says many rooms, it's not speaking of a type of accommodation. It's speaking of vastness. It's speaking of hugeness. In heaven there will be millions and millions of God's people from all nations, all tribes, all languages, right throughout history. Zillions of believers. Heaven will be unimaginably vast. You think this world is big? If you've got a bigger mind, you think this universe is massive and can't get to the bottom of it? It's nothing compared to heaven. Heaven is unimaginably vast. And so they mustn't get down when in a while they see him crucified on a cross. They mustn't lose hope because they are few in number. This is not the end for them. This is not the end of the gospel. In fact, it's the exact opposite. His death is the beginning. He will have many disciples who will follow him. So how do those followers get to God's dwelling place? Jesus says two things. One, he says he will prepare a place for them. That doesn't mean he's going to clean and tidy. He's going to make the beds ready for them. He means prepare you. Prepare those disciples. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the resurrection. That's their preparation. Their bodies can't go to heaven yet. He hasn't died on the cross for mankind's sins. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned, they were banished from God's presence, banished from his kingdom. And that sin is still on mankind. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, death, which is separation from God, came to all. Every human being has that sin upon them. So they cannot go to heaven. They're not prepared. But Paul goes on in that verse, but just as one sin was condemnation, so one act of righteousness, Jesus dying on the cross, brings justification. 
It brings forgiveness. If you are forgiven, you are justified. If you are justified, you are prepared for heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's theological. His preparing a place for them is dying for their sins so that they can enter heaven. And he is the forerunner, if you like, but he's not the last. Many mansions, all his followers, you and I will join him in our resurrected bodies. That's what he means. The second way which they will come to heaven is when he says, I will come back and take you to be with me. He's speaking of his second coming. He's he's speaking of the last day when the curtain comes down on world history. When that day comes, Jesus Christ will come to gather his people. He'll come to gather his bride. His bride which he has prepared. And on the last day, he will come for her. In Jewish custom, a couple's life together began with a betrothal. They got engaged, if you like. But when they got engaged, then the bridegroom went away for a year to prepare a place in his father's home for his bride. That's what they did. That was the custom. And that time was called the year of preparation. Preparation for his bride. When the year was up, the bridegroom would go and collect his bride, bring her back to his father's house, and there they would live together as husband and wife. That's the picture Jesus has in mind. At his first coming, he betrothed himself to his church. He then made preparations for his bride. He died for her to cleanse, purify, and make her spotless to enter his father's house. In Revelation chapter 1, it speaks of the last day, and it says this. Then I saw a new heaven. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully for a husband. Jesus prepared and is preparing his church for heaven. And this is what believers look forward to. And we especially look forward to them in difficult times and painful times. And when it's hard, when it's hard even to believe and to keep faith. It's when the hits come. And it's when Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. One day, if not in this life, then in the next life, it will all end. One day, our Lord will return. And he will wipe every tear. Every tear. Doesn't matter what you've been through or what you're going through now. There'll be no more pain. No more rejection. No more loneliness, no more unkindness. There'll be no more failure. Praise the Lord for that. There'll be no falling into sin. Praise the Lord for that. There will be no more emotional pain. There will be no more death. And very quickly, three things which Jesus says about heaven. Very quickly. One, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you is personal. It's personal. Somehow, your God-given personality will still be with you. Don't ask me how, but people will know you, and you will know other people. And when you're there, you will meet those people who have gone before you, 
You will meet people who suffered greatly for Christ. You will meet the martyrs and the great the greats of church history. You will meet Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. You'll meet those people. You'll meet those Christians who are suffering right now through war and strife and persecution. You'll meet them. You'll meet Christians that you've known in your life. Some that you have lost here and missed greatly. You will see them. You might, it might be your mother or your father or your son or your daughter. It may be the baby that you lost. But you'll meet them. And it will be a wonderful reunion. Secondly, it is God's house. So we will meet our creator. It's his house. We'll meet him. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And thirdly, we'll meet our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll meet him face to face. You'll know him straight away. It may still have the scars. You'll see him. The one who came and suffered and died to bring all this for us and his whole church. Brothers and sisters, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Let me pray. I'm going to leave a moment of quiet and just try to take all this in which our Lord has done and accomplished. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, so now and forever shall be, world without end. Amen.